Good morning. Hey, if you got a Bible, you can open it up to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. We'll go back and forth between Isaiah 35 and Luke chapter 2 this morning. We're in a series entitled Christmas Time. And what we're doing is we're talking or uh, teaching through the main themes of Advent each week. And so we've covered the hope of Christmas. We've covered the preparation for Christmas. And now today we're going to talk about the joy of Christmas. This ultimately culminates on Christmas Eve. And so I hope you're planning on joining us uh, either Wednesday night at 6 or Thursday night, 2, 4, or 6. I also want to give a special welcome to those of you who are watching online. Thanks for joining us this morning. This morning, as we work our way through Isaiah 35, we're going to see at the end how when we know what Christmas is about, when we experience the fulfillment of it, that there is joy on the other side, regardless of what has come prior to. So let's begin in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. There are a picture here of two different physical landscapes, the wilderness and the desert. And these two physical landscapes are used all throughout the scriptures, wilderness and the desert. And there's wandering and there's lostness and there's despair in these places, the wilderness and the desert. Now, historically, what Isaiah is speaking is he's telling the children of Israel that one day throughout this text, he's telling them that you will be set free from the actual captivity that the nation was in at the time. You'll be, you'll be set free from this. Now, spiritually, what's going on, Isaiah is telling all of us that there's a way to be set free from our spiritual captivity, from the seasons of dryness that overtake us, like seasons of desert or wilderness. And so these physical places, the desert and the wilderness, they exist. Why? Because they, uh, why are they called that? Well, there's no water and they lack life and abundance. They're dead or dry. Now, this is opposite of the world that God created. God created a world that was full of life, that was always brimming over with life. In the Garden of Eden, as you read through God's creation, you see constantly how he was creating and making and forming life. And at the heart of it all was always water. There were four rivers that worked its way into Eden. And so water and life is like the story of Genesis 1 and 2. And then after that, when sin breaks into the world, where does humanity go? Off into the wilderness. God tells them that, that life will get harder, that there will be toil and there will be pain and difficulty, and that they will then find themselves in desert and wilderness places. Physically speaking, uh, like the world, like it, it seems like that the wilderness wasn't even supposed to exist. The desert wasn't supposed to exist. There's always supposed to be places of life, right? Spiritually. In the same way that the desert and the wilderness was never like supposed to exist, we were never supposed to exist in dryness, in despair, in brokenness. But these physical landscapes then give us a picture of a spiritual place that sometimes we find ourselves in, a place that seems to lack joy, life. Sometimes this is just a, it feels like a picture of our lives through an entire difficult season. Maybe you've faced one lately. Sometimes it just feels like uh, a picture of a certain part of our lives where, where there was something that once was life-giving or once was uh, promising and it seems like the light has gone out there or despair has settled over hopelessness. 
has taken over? What of these places? What, is, what does God have to say about these places in our lives? And what does Christmas have to do with them? It tells us, or Isaiah says, it will happen in this way, that at some point in time, there will be rejoicing in the desert, and at some point in time, there will be gladness in the dry land. It uses words like this, abundance, rejoicing, joy, singing. Then it makes a comparison, a comparison to the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, two beautiful mountains. They'll see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of God. See, what, what Isaiah is setting up here for the children of Israel is he's saying, in the place of your captivity, believe it or not, someday you will come out of that and there will be great joy. What Isaiah is speaking to us is in a place of despair, in a place of hopelessness, in a place of dryness. You might not believe this, but someday, someday there will be great joy out of that. How? How will this reversal happen? Well, Isaiah teaches us. He says, the sh- he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, some of you can probably relate to the, the feeble knees. You can relate to the, the hands that have grown weak, a body that doesn't seem to quite work the same way. Last week, I told you about my 18-mile walk. I'm actually still sore today, eight days later from that walk, so I can relate to some of this. Maybe some of you can relate to the anxious heart, the heart that is wondering about someone or something, and you're losing sleep, and your, your heart is anxious over the, the, the situation or the person that you love. And so you connect with that. To all of these, to the, the body that is broken down or the soul that is dry, the heart that is anxious, Isaiah introduces us to something to give us hope. He says, be strong, fear not. Words that if we're familiar with the Christmas story, which I'm sure most of you or many of you are, if you're not, don't worry, I'll read it to you, should sound familiar. See, over in Luke 2, says this, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all people. Just like the place of the desert and the place of the wilderness, there will be joy on the other side of it. The angels show up and they say, in the place of the dryness or the wilderness, the waiting that Israel has gone through for its salvation, there's an announcement made. Joy can now begin to come. Don't be afraid. Joy is here. It has arrived. Isaiah says it this way, though. Be strong. Fear not. Now get these next words. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. Now, normally when we hear of God's vengeance, when we hear of the fact that he's, the recompense of God is coming, the, the typical idea that comes to mind is, well, then I better be afraid. Like if God is a God of vengeance, I don't want to be on the other side of that vengeance. I don't want to, to, to be around when the recompense of God falls out. And some of us, the, the, the joy uh, has disappeared in our lives because we think that for one reason or another, 
because of this sin or, or that sin or this time in our lives or, or because we, we, we failed one too many times that the vengeance of God is coming and we need to be afraid of it. And see, two of the distortions that Satan has worked his way into the world is this. One, that we need to fear the vengeance of God because it's aimed, the second one, because it's aimed at us. And so we think, yeah, God is vengeful, God is wrathful, God is strong, and his vengeance is coming, and it's pointed at me. It's pointed at me because of this or that. But look at what Isaiah says. He says, be strong, fear not. Why? Why don't you have to fear, Israel? Why don't you and I have to fear? Why? Because God isn't going to pour out his vengeance? No. We, we fear not because he is going to pour out his vengeance. Don't fear. God's going to pour out his vengeance. Maybe a little different thought than we sometimes have. Be strong, fear not. Why? Because God is pouring out his vengeance. And then secondly, he says this, he will come and save you. What is Isaiah doing here? He's preaching the gospel. If you ever think, I don't understand the Old Testament, I'm not even sure why we read it or study it, help me get it. Let me just give you a quick hint. The whole point of reading the Old Testament is to see how it points to Jesus and his gospel. That's what the whole thing's about. It's always pointing back to Jesus, and it's explaining the gospel for us. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's showing us the gospel. Vengeance, but salvation. Vengeance, but salvation. Because, see, God would come, and he would pour out his vengeance. Uh, Luke chapter 2 teaches us how it is that he would enter into the world. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. See, when Jesus, uh, his, his, his birth announcement happens, it's surrounded with good news and joy. But why is it that in modern understanding, when we think of God and we think of his vengeance, that there's this idea that we need to be scared or afraid of it? How is it that it's worked our way in our culture that, that we somehow blame God for the, the bad things that happen in our lives or in the world? Because we believe the lie that Satan has distorted and, and twisted, getting us to believe that, that somehow the brokenness is God's fault. And so people ask questions like, why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? Like, what is God doing? But as we read through the story of Scripture, what we see is that God's aim and what he was always doing was just coming to rescue. Why would we, why would we be afraid or, or, or despise or hate the one who is coming to rescue? And the word of Scripture over and over through it out all of it is that Jesus' aim was to come and rescue. Well, just in case you don't believe me, let me go to the most obvious example of this. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Isaiah 35 connects us to Luke chapter 2, which connects us to John chapter 3, showing us that the whole point of Jesus showing up was to save us, not to pour his wrath out on us. But it says that God will pour out his vengeance, and God did pour out his vengeance. But how did God pour out his vengeance? Did he pour it out on you? No. And what did God do? 
He poured out his vengeance. How did he pour it out? He poured it out on himself. And so Christ, this child, this baby that comes into the world, he, he grows up and then he goes to the cross and he goes to the cross. And what does God do? He does exactly what Isaiah said he would do. God pours out his vengeance and he pours out his wrath and he pours it out on himself. Why? So that God could also do what he said he would do. He could save us. And so the vengeance of God is poured out on Christ on the cross. And because of that, then you and I can experience the second part of this. We can be saved. We can experience our redemption or our salvation. What then occurs when this gospel, which this is what this is, it's the gospel, it's the good news predicted in Luke 2 and all throughout the scriptures. What then happens when this gospel begins to break into our lives? Remember our metaphors, the desert and the wilderness. It says, after the gospel breaks in, verse 5, then, then, after the gospel, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah begins to give us these pictures of physical redemption that will happen in people's bodies. And we believe this. This happens uh, to this day where God will heal people and bring physical redemption, right? We shared a story of this a few weeks ago. But it also points us to a spiritual reality that after the gospel begins to break through, that these reversals begin to happen. And what seemed like impossibilities will then become possible. Like the line we looked at last week, all things are possible with God. And so these places or these, uh, the, these, uh, um, um, situations in our lives, the gospel begins to break in and they're reversed. But the author keeps going. He wants to, he wants to work his metaphor in deeper. He says, for waters break forth in the wilderness and, and streams in the desert. Some of you have a book called Streams in the Desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Now showing physical impossibilities. Water's breaking forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. I mean, they're wilderness and desert for the very reason that water never breaks in. Impossibilities becoming possible, reversals occurring. So you guys have probably seen, some of you have seen me carrying around this water jug. Some of you have made fun of me for carrying around this water jug. Tell me that I look ridiculous when I'm drinking it. Let me tell you why I, I carry this one-gallon water bottle around. So a few weeks ago, uh, a lady in the church came up to me, uh, and she kind of, she was an older lady, and she, she kind of grabbed me by the arm and gave me like a, like, like a grandma moment where she looked at me and she said, if you don't go to the doctor, you're not going to be able to talk next year. It's like, well, that's pretty fierce. And what she prompted in me was the fact that for like 15 years, I've been saying I need to go to the ENT. Uh, because after coaching and preaching and running camps and everything like that, like my voice has just been shot. And so uh, when I was earlier in my, in my life, I had a coworker who had to go two weeks without, or two months, I'm sorry, without speaking, because the doctor told him, if you don't, if you don't do this, then you're not going to be able to talk. And, and so that person had to go silent for two months. They typed everything out. And, and, and so these fears started playing in my mind. And so I finally went to the ENT after, you know, putting it off for a decade. And I got there, and I'm having the conversation with the ENT. And as we're chatting through it, he began to, you know, ask me some questions near the end. Now, in my mind, as I was going to the doctor, I thought in my head, like, I have throat cancer. 
or they're going to tell me there's something on my vocal cords and I'm going to have to go on vocal rest for like six months. Right? And so then as I begin to play that on my head, I start thinking things like, am I ever going to be able to preach again? Like, at what point is my voice just going to leave and I'm never going to be able to preach again? Like, how am I going to get excited in a sermon, right, if I can't? Like, I'm going to have to turn into Tim Keller and just speak, like, the same monotone the entire point, right, which is my content is going to have to be way better, right? And so, like, all of these things are, like, you know, swimming through my head as I get there. And kind of the end of the appointment, the doctor looks at me and he goes, how much coffee do you drink a day? I said, mm, somewhere between like 10 and 40 ounces. It's like 40, right? He's like, how much water do you drink a day? And I was like, eh, probably somewhere between like, you know, 80 to 20, right? He was like, okay, you are severely dehydrated. Severely dehydrated. He said, here's what I need you to do. I need you to reverse those numbers. You get eight ounces of coffee a day. And you need to drink about 80 ounces of water a day. And so me being the overachiever that I am, went to Amazon. Actually, Lindsay did this for me. Apparently, she still wants me to be able to talk. Thanks, hon. And she ordered this. And it's 128 ounces of water. And I drink it every day. And now I can yell again. And it doesn't take me till Saturday for my voice to recover. There were times during the week over the last few months where I would, uh, like, want to say something and, like, nothing would come out. I also blame Bubbly and LaCroix because you think you're drinking water, but you're really just destroying yourself, right? At least the hydration part. I went in to this situation thinking, I have throat cancer. I'm not going to be able to speak again. I walked out of it, and the doctor gave me the most basic instruction in life. Drink water. And since I have, my body has hydrated and my voice strength has returned. Some of you, your souls, your heart is dying for water. You are dehydrated. And what we do in these moments is we try these fix, these fixes. We drink bubbly, thinking it's hydrating us when it's not. We drink coffee, thinking this isn't having any effect, and it's not. Cutting through the metaphor, we seek after these things that we think are bringing life, and they're not. And what he's teaching us, what, what God is saying to us, is you need to drink deeply of that which actually brings life. That the gospel can break in in such a way into our, into our lives that our dehydrated selves begin to brim with life again. For water, water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. Get that word picture in your mind. The burning sand shall become a pool. I mean, Isaiah is intentionally using the most ridiculous of metaphors. The thirsty ground, the, the, the place where there is nothing will all of a sudden be springs of water. The place where there is nothing will all of a sudden be the place
place where people go to get water. The place that is dying, that is barren land, will be the place where people show up and say, this is where I find myself. Okay, let's cut through the metaphor a little bit. The thing that is dying in your life, the place where the greatest fear is, the place where the hopelessness has taken over, the situation, the relationship, the person where you think all hope is lost when the gospel begins to break in, will begin to swell with life. The area where you used to be so afraid, God will use that default that you thought was going to define you. The thing that you thought was so overwhelming, the gospel will break in, will properly hydrate or strengthen that thing, and then it will become the place of life. Like he's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible for us to believe. Like if we just created a couple of examples, right? Like it's like it's like when the sin that used to define you or, or have its grip on you is now the other th- is now the very sin that you help other people escape from. The person who you had lost all hope for is now the one that others go for and ask, "How did you make it through?" And these situations become reversed through the gospel. When we just drink of the gospel. I drink this every day. Missed one day. I only got to, uh, I only got to five o'clock where it says no excuses. Made some excuses that day. When it comes to the gospel and drinking of it deeply every day, you can make your excuses. But your heart and your soul needs to drink of the gospel every single day. Every day. You wake up and and, and you fill your metaphorical gallon. We could probably sell gospel gallons or something now. $4.99. And it's just your heart being saturated with the gospel. Look what happens when that happens when the gospel really begins to break through. It says, all of a sudden, a highway shall be there. A highway shall be where? In the desert and the wilderness. A highway. This used to be the place where everyone was just wandering around. There was no order. There was no structure. It was complete chaos. And then all of a sudden, a highway appears in the desert and the wilderness. The highway, obviously, being a way to traverse yourself through it. It's as if to say the desert and the wilderness won't fully disappear. See, even in our lives, pre the return of Christ, pre the time when we're just always in his glory, right? Like we still oftentimes find ourselves in desert and wilderness because little things come up in life. But he's saying all of a sudden when the gospel begins to saturate us, a, a, a highway appears, a path begins to show us. Okay, so even though I might still sense this uh, desert or wilderness, even though like I still live in the reality of this world, now I've been given a highway to walk down. I've been showing a path how to walk through life here on this earth. And so this highway appears, and the highway is called the way of holiness. Many of you probably know this. Like early on, Christianity was just referred to as the way. The way. Like this is just the way of life. This is how you live life. And all of a sudden, this highway appears, and this is how then you're supposed to walk through it. 
It says, the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Do you see what it's saying there? It shall belong to those who walk on the way. I think what that's saying is, as you're walking on this highway through this desert and the wilderness, those who don't get it because they haven't yet drank of the gospel, they don't understand the road. They don't get it. They don't look at you and go, they'll, they'll look at you and go, how do you have joy right now? How are you so hopeful right now? How haven't you just counted that thing out right now? Because if they haven't stepped into it, they don't understand it. The, the, if they haven't drank of the gospel yet, they don't believe it. But when, when you're on it, when, when you get on it, all of a sudden you're on it and you understand it. Because you can go, no, 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 my hope is in the Lord. My hope is in something so much bigger than what you see. It says, but the redeemed... Well, hold on, I skipped the line. This one's good. We don't want to skip this. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I think what this is teaching us here is once you get on the path and you you step onto it and you're walking down this life, he says, even the fools won't go astray. What? Well, I mean, I'm on the path, right? But man, there are some foolish things I do in my life. There are some foolish moments. I think what this is teaching us is that God in his love and his grace, that, that even when we, like, like a bowling ball going down the, going down the bowling lane, right? Like it goes off of a stray and what happens? The bumper just bumps it back in. That even when we're like going astray and we're, we're walking down this path and we're like, we get foolish because, because our priorities shift. We get foolish because, um, uh, because our heart gets captured by something else for a moment. We get foolish because we get caught up in something or we think, I want to go back to the dry place for whatever reason. God and his love and his grace just kind of bumps us back into place. This is, by the way, why I never lose hope when I've seen the gospel have its full effect in somebody's life. Some of you have kids like this that you're praying for. Right? You've, you, you like, you've seen those moments where the gospel came so alive. And, and, and now what you're praying is that God in his love and his grace, uh, when the fool has gone astray, just kind of lovingly bumps him back in. Moves him back in. God says, even the fool won't go astray. Even, even in our moments of foolishness, like he'll, he'll just, he'll just keep us on in. And then it tells us this. Here's what else happens on the path here. Uh, this, this way. He says, no lion shall be there. Nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that once you step onto the, the gospel path that there's no more enemies. Because we all know that not to be true, and that would be contrary to like a hundred other sermons I've preached. So that's not what I mean, and I don't think that's what it means. I think that there is ultimately a day when we will walk down a path where there are no enemies. I think what this is saying is when you get onto the path, you live in such a way and begin to see in such a way that the things that you used to think were enemies begin to disappear and no longer appear to be enemies. Look at Paul. Paul is told by his friends, don't go to Rome. If you go to Rome, you'll die. And what does Paul say? He says, I don't really care. I mean, everyone, biggest enemy, right? The the enemy of death. Paul, he's not Jesus, right? Sometimes we're like, well, that's Jesus. No, this is Paul. Paul goes, oh, I don't care about death. That's not an enemy anymore. I'm walking on the way. So what happens? Kill me. The things that used to be enemies 
all of a sudden, when we understand this path, when you understand this gospel, when we're drinking of it deeply, see, we walk down and we look at something, we think, oh, that used to be a fear. That used to be a, a this. That used to be the thing that I, you know, I never thought I'd be able to get by. Oh, that's not an enemy anymore. I've drank deeply of the gospel. Some of you have arrived in this place. Like, like if the thing was out in front of you, you couldn't help but like go to the thing right? Whatever the thing was. And now the gospel has changed you in such a way that thing can be right in front of your face. And you're just like, nope, I don't need that. I don't need to drink that. I don't need to do that. I don't need to buy that. I don't need to fill in the blank, right? Because you've walked on the way and the gospel has changed you in such a way that the thing is not even an enemy anymore. You just have so much power over it. And that's not the only thing that you're going to experience on this. If you're walking down the path correctly, it says, but the redeemed shall walk there. The plural redeemed shall walk there, which means you're not walking down it alone. You ever out in public and you see somebody that you don't necessarily want to see, right? Because you have a past and I have a past and we all have a past and there's certain people in that past that you would prefer not to see, right? God bless them, love your enemies, pray for them, you know, whatever. But you don't like them. Your prayer for them has to be positive, too. Some of you, like, pray for your enemies. You're like, God, I pray that you spite them. Your prayer has to be positive, okay? It's not in there, but it's in there, okay? When you see those people, what feels better? When you're alone and they're with a group? Or when you're with a group and they're alone? You're allowed to answer the question. It feels way better when you're with a group and they're alone when you see that person. Because when you're alone and they're with the group, you feel even more like, ah, they're talking about me, they're saying this, they're saying whatever it is. You feel exposed. When you get on the path, this path, you're supposed to be then walking down the path with the redeemed. And so even when the enemies do seem more powerful for you, your friends look and say, no, no, no. That thing doesn't have to have any power over you. No, 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 I'm walking with you. That thing does not have to destroy you. And so you walk down the path together. You walk down the path together. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. I mean, this is, like, if you start back at verse 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. If we remember that, that Isaiah is writing this historically into a group of people who have been in captivity for a very long time, and he looks at them and says, there will be a day in the future when you will walk into your freedom. And the Israelites must have looked back and said, yeah, that's just not going to happen. We've been in captivity for so long. We have been, we have been trapped in this for so long. And Isaiah says, no, 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 no. The ransom of the Lord shall return. You will return. The freedom will come. And you will come to Zion with singing. All of you in your despair, all of you in your brokenness, there will be a day when instead of being known in your captivity and your slavery, you will be known for your singing. You will be known for your joy, making it more personal. There will be a time through this gospel, the way this gospel can work, that the thing that is breaking you can actually become the place of your greatest joy. You'll come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. I mean, if we're following the Paul metaphor, by the way, imagine if somebody said when, when, when Paul sat there and he looked at Stephen getting stoned and he saw the life come out of him, if somebody would have said right there, popped up in that moment, and one day, Paul, you will die 
for the same reason Stephen did. And 2,000 years later, people will be talking about your spiritual bravery. Nobody would have believed it. In the same way, nobody would have believed that one day Israel would be singing with joy in the same way that you might not believe that that relationship will be restored. In the same way that you might not believe that that thing that seems hopeless will come back to be. In the same way that you might not believe that God could actually take the dry thing and, and brim it over with life. But it will happen. And when it dies, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. When I think of everlasting joy being upon their heads, I think of times when we're like walking down the path and we're walking down the way and we've seen like, oh my gosh, this person got physically healed. That's cool. And this person over here, they broke that addiction. And that marriage, we thought it was over. But man, look at it now. And this, oh, I can't believe how God reversed that. And when I think about joy over our heads, it's like when we're walking and we're seeing God doing everything in everyone else's life and we think, man, that, there's like a joy around that. And I just feel good about being around that joy. That sounds, that man, it feels good. It feels good. But oftentimes what we do in those moments is we think the joy is out there and it's on other people's heads and it's kind of floating around in the environment, but it isn't for me. But see, next, what he says is this. They shall obtain gladness and joy. In other words, there will be a moment when the joy breaks in. When it's not just out there, but it, it breaks in here. Like you, you will be filled with joy. You will be filled with this gladness. The gospel will break in as you drink of it so deeply over and over every day. And as your body begins to be, uh, your spirit, your soul begins to be rehydrated, that the joy will break in. I mean, I did an entire series on this earlier this year. It was the first series in our new building where we talked about, does God want me to be happy? And where 21 and 22-year-old depressed me would have never thought that there would be a season of joy, like this extended period of joy, like, oh, it's good for them, and I'm glad for them, and I'm glad for them. But I never thought it would break in and then it did. And we get to these points where we think it won't work for me, but I'm glad it works for other people. And I get this like tangential joy from you, but no, the joy could break in for you. For you. And the joy breaks in. And then it says this, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, this side of heaven, there's always going to be a new little sorrow or a new little sigh that kind of pops up, right? Oh, that's just a part of life. But don't we know that there are certain areas in our lives then where it seems like where you once felt so sorrow and so much sighing over it, then when the gospel broke in and began to change it, you look and you think, yeah, man, that thing doesn't bring me nearly as much sorrow as it once did. I don't get nearly as angry as I used to did over that. I don't fear that nearly as much as I used to. And the gospel breaks in and you just, you begin to push it to the side. Now, as this happens over time, over time, and as we stay consistent in it, I have to understand, or I have to believe that the longer I do this practice, the healthier my voice and the healthier the rest of me is going to get. That the more that I drink of the gospel and the more that I, 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 I just saturate myself into it, that the more that this, this path and this life that he's laying out here is going to be true of me and is going to be true of you. The more we drink of the gospel, this is just going to, it's just going to keep happening. In fact, I think I can tell you that it's going to happen because the text actually points us to it. Let me show you how. 
The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, like the crocus. How does the crocus blossom? What happens? Some of you know what a crocus is. Some of you don't. I didn't until like eight days ago, so Google. The crocus is that first little sign of life that comes up when you don't think life could ever happen again. After first service, somebody came up to me, and they, they were like, listen, listen, listen. I said, I have, I have these vivid images in my life of seeing snow on the ground, of it being barren, and it being cold, and it being miserable, and all of a sudden, watching through the snow, I see this one little green leaf pop up. You know what that is? It's the crocus. It's the crocus. And the crocus doesn't become the biggest, right? The crocus doesn't, uh, uh, the crocus it probably isn't even the most beautiful, right? But what the crocus does is in the most barren moments, the crocus pops through the ground. It's why Isaiah picked it. And what he's saying is in the driest of moments, in the worst of situations, at the lowest of times, in the things that seem the most impossible, when the gospel begins to break in, you will just see a sign of life. Like just a little bit of hope will be restored. And you will begin to believe again that maybe this thing could actually grow up into something. And what does the enemy want to do when the crocus begins? I mean, physically what happens, oftentimes the crocus will bring in and then another snow, at least in our environment, will come in and it'll try to destroy it. But the crocus will still pop up. Because what the enemy wants to do when he begins to see life come in is he wants to break it down. Let me connect this to Christmas. When Jesus shows up, the crocus, right? When Jesus shows up, the first sign of new life, what does the enemy try and do? Stamp him out. And so Herod gives this horrendous decree. Why? Because the enemy, not Herod, the enemy knew that if the crocus, Christ, if the first sign of life, if it survived, if it kept going, that it would grow into something that would bring life to all things. And so he thought, I have to stop it here because if I stop it here, then I have a chance. But if it grows into something, I don't. And what the enemy knows in your life is this, that as soon as that little thing pops up, what he wants to do is stamp it out because he knows if it really begins to take root, if it really begins to happen, then it's going to start overflowing with life again. And the depressed person is going to become the joyful person. And the scared person is going to become the confident person. And the hopeless person is going to be the one screaming out hope to everybody else. And the angry person is going to get over their bitterness and they're going to show forgiveness that melts other people. And the author actually teaches us what it looks like because he says it'll start as a crocus and then he switches his, uh, his metaphor and he just uses this quick phrase, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Now, what of Lebanon? Lebanon is often mentioned in the scriptures and when it's mentioned, it is always tied back to the trees of Lebanon. 
the trees of Lebanon. In other words, what started as the crocus just breaking through ends up as the trees of Lebanon, which are the trees that are commissioned to be cut down and sent across to be built or to build the palace and the temple. In other words, when the gospel breaks through and, it just, and it's just the first sign of hope, if you just keep pouring the gospel into it and pouring the gospel into it, it'll grow up into such an impressive figure and it will be used to build the kingdom and the church. And if you will let the gospel break in to that place and if you will let the first sign of life come up and not lose the hope and then you just let the gospel keep watering it. God will use it and it'll keep growing until it's as strong as the trees of Lebanon or as majestic as Carmel and Sharon. It'll become a mountain of faith. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Tying that in. Other people then will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God because they'll see how the crocus popped in through your life, how the first sign of the gospel popped in, and then something beautiful and majestic came out of it. In the dry place, in the wilderness place, the water will break through. So I don't know uh, this morning what seems dry or hopeless or in despair for you. I don't know um, what other methods you've used to try and fix it. But I know that the water of the gospel of Christ is the thing that will truly make it overflow with life again. And I hope you'll let it in. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now you would restore hope that the joy of Christmas is real, that the gospel can break in in such a way that what the angels said, that, that, that they were bringing good news to all people, means all people, and so that each person in here can sit in your sovereignty, that your gospel can break into the most despairing of situations, environments, hearts, whatever, and life can begin to form. And Father, where the gospel is already broken into places and, and it's like um, life is just kind of popping up a little bit, but there's, it almost seems like it might die back, I pray that you would water it with the gospel and that you would continue to grow it up Lord, and I think of the power of a story like we shared a few weeks ago with Jamie where years of pain is now a great story of healing. Where people who have years of addiction are now a great story of liberation. Or someone who was once so afraid now has a boldness. And when we see this happening in people's lives, 
It's like we, we step into like an environment of joy. But Lord, for some in here, they still don't believe that it can be theirs. So I pray that your joy would break into their, their own heart. Help them to believe again. And Father, like we all do, when we see the first nice day in the spring, when the crocus begins to, to pop in, we, we all like feel better. It's like a communal lift. Father, I pray that when the gospel begins in its tiniest of ways to begin to show that it's bearing life again, that you would lift the heart of the person who sees that little bit of life. So give people a sign this week, Lord. Maybe where there was distance, there will be some closeness. Where there was anxious heart, there will be some calm. Give them signs of the life that is breaking through. And may that bring the joy that Christmas came to bring. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.